Well, hello, and welcome to another moment with Eric Fleming. I am your host, Eric Fleming. And by the time this episode airs, you will know two things have happened. Senator Raphael Warnock was reelected by a slim margin to the United States Senate, which means that the Democrats now have 51 to the Republicans, 49 as far as who is going to meet and caucus and vote on issues. This means that Kamala Harris doesn't have to break ties. Not unless, and I'm not speaking it into existence, but keep your eyes on that Senate come January. That's all I'm going to say. Just keep your eyes on it. But as of right now, it's 5149. Uh, in favor of the Democrats and the House uh, has a Republican majority, although very slim. I think it's 221 to 213, something like that. Yeah. Uh, or 214. Uh, some, something like that. But anyway, uh, that's where we are election-wise. And Brittany Griner is no longer a prisoner in Russia. And that is an incredible story. Considering that uh, there is another gentleman, uh, Paul Whelan, I believe his name is. And the United States is really pushing to get both of them out at the same time. And the Russian government just agreed to a one-on-one swap. And they basically said they'll let Griner go. Uh, <clears throat> y'all, excuse me. Because Griner was arrested on basically a domestic criminal charge in Russia, as opposed to what they've arrested Mr. Whelan for. Uh, they accused Mr. Whelan of being a spy. Miss Griner was just somebody that had a substance that was banned in the country, allegedly. And so even though she was convicted of that, we, we, we understand, right, that this was a political pawn game. And so the Russians got who they wanted, which is, I can't remember his real name, but most people know him as the merchant of death. So we had to give up the merchant of death to get Brittany Griner home, but Brittany Griner is home and we'll just have to wait and see what the repercussions are with this guy being free now and back in the custody of his native country or Russia. So, but those are two good things that have happened and wanted to make sure that on this podcast, those things were chronicled and hopefully, you know, as, as time goes on, as we get into the next year, we'll see how the political dynamics shape up. Um, because this whole thing with Russia still in Ukraine is going to be an issue. Um, and how the Congress is going to, be effective uh, is going to be an issue. 
So we'll we'll watch all that. But just keep your eyes on that Congress because uh, there are the, things are not settled. <laughs> and I'll just leave. That'll be my tease. I hope my tease is wrong. I hope that everything is settled and people that are supposed to be in power. Oh, by the way, there's a black man who is now the majority minority leader of the house coming in. Uh, Hakeem Jeffries, Congressman from New York uh, has become the first black man to be in a majority leader or minority leader position in the United States Congress. And so Mr. Jeffries will replace basically Nancy Pelosi uh, in, in that role. And should the Democrats get control of the house again, uh, he's going to be first in line to be speaker of the house. So just two years from now, black folks, it's some motivation. Tell your cousins, your neighbors, your friends, your allies, vote Democratic if you want to see a black man to be the Speaker of the House. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. That's what you want. If you want to see that happen, the Democrats have to take control. That means y'all in New York State that put these Republicans in because you were afraid that New York City crime was going to hit your little small town, y'all get over it. <laughs> get over it. Because when you watch this Congress go into effect, this House of Representatives, you're going to realize you should have kept Sean Patrick and his three other friends. Still probably would have been a Republican majority, but it would have been only one vote as opposed to, you know, whatever. Anyway, you'll fix that. <laughs> Once you see these next two years, the Marjorie Taylor Green and I think Bobert won. I think they finally said that she won, right? And all the rest of those guys, once you see that clown show for the next two years, <laughs> you'll get it straight. And Akeem Jeffries will be the first black speaker of the United States House of Representatives. Anyway, that's just to update y'all. I, I, that's all I can get into because I've got some guests uh, on this podcast and uh, I'm really excited about these guests. I'm always excited about guests, right? And uh, But I'm really excited about these guests. And I'm going to go ahead and introduce the first one. And her name is Tunisia Hope. Ms. Tunisia Hope serves as the director of the R.J. Bunch International Affairs Center at Howard University, where she oversees the strategic vision for the center and all programming. She is committed to facilitating relationships between and among people of different cultures, and particularly to exposing young people from underserved communities, domestically and internationally, to opportunities for travel and education abroad. She received her BA in Latin American Studies slash Spanish from Macalester College, and I'm probably mispronouncing it for all you alums, y'all can let me know and her master's in tourism administration slash international education from George Washington University. She is currently completing her PhD at Howard University. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor and privilege to introduce to the podcast, Ms. Tunisia Hope.
All right, Miss Tunisia Hope, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing good. Doing good. Uh, glad to have you on the podcast. Uh, normally, if I can, I try to find a quote that pertains to the person I'm interviewing or the work that they're doing. So I want to start off with a quote and get your response to it. I have a deep-seated bias against hate and intolerance. I have a bias against racial and religious bigotry. I have a bias that leads me to believe in the essential goodness of my fellow man, which leads me to believe that no problem of human relations is ever insoluble. Uh, what, is the, what does that quote mean to you? Actually, as you're reading that, it actually sounds like a letter that I read that my grandfather wrote. Okay. What that means to me is um, uh, my grandfather uh, grew up in, uh, well, he lived here in D.C. He taught at Howard, um, but he left to go and be the super, the chair of the engineering department at the American University of Beirut. And at the time, this is in the 40s and 50s. And, um, you know, he they wrote letters home all the time. And he was very plugged into the civil rights movement in the U.S. Um, and I can't remember who he was writing the letter to. It might have been a letter to Robert Kennedy. It might have been a letter to Martin Luther King. I'm not sure which one, but I have them all here in my box. And what you just read actually sounds like almost word for word a letter that I read from him to to one of those people. And it just, for me, just means, um, you know, essentially seeking peace however we can through human interaction and, um, and building relationships. And without any kind of, uh, I don't like the word tolerance because it seems like you're putting up with people. And I don't think you should have to put up with people. I think we should be working towards building meaningful, uh, impactful, solid relationships with people. And through that, we will be able to have a more peaceful and just world. And I appreciate you giving me credit for having the research skills to dig in your box. Uh, but that is that was not from your your grandfather actually. That I didn't was think so. that was from Ralph Bunch. And well, uh, but well, the, to be fair, my grandfather and Ralph Bunch were very close friends. To be fair, yeah, yeah, and it, it's it, you know uh, birds with feather flock together, right? So yes, yes. yeah, uh, and and but that's interesting that it brought up those kind of memories, and it just proves that there are there were a lot of people behind the scenes doing things uh, during that era to try to build the community up. So I appreciate you sharing that. Thank you. Um, but since this was a quote from Mr. Bunch, let me, let me <laughs> get back on task. And what is the mission of the Ralph Bunch International Affairs Center at Howard University? Well, we're working to advocate for comprehensive internationalization across the institution. Um, we serve as kind of the, the nexus of all international activities, programs, 
at Howard. Um, and so we are working to support our students primarily, as well as our faculty and staff in all of their international goals and objectives um, to prepare our students to be leaders for uh, the U.S. and the global community. So explain to listeners why this center is named after Ralph Bunch. Who was Ralph Bunch? So Ralph Bunch was the founder of the political science department at Howard University, but more broadly, he was one of the co-founders of the United Nations and the first African-American to win the Nobel Peace Prize for his uh, role mediating the conflict between Israel and the Arab states in 1949. So he won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1950. Right. And to throw in a couple of nuggets with that, he he kind of got thrown into that situation because the person who was supposed to be the negotiator was killed. And, yeah. and, and, and so they, they sent Mr. Bunch in to fill in. The other nugget is that he started the political science department at Howard as a graduate student. Correct. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's pretty cool. I wish I could have started a school when I was in. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Why is it important for African-Americans to be engaged in international affairs? Everything global is local and everything local is global. I think, um, I think probably more recently, you know, for, for this generation and the generations that, that surround us right now, um, I think the pandemic brought things into focus, particularly about how interconnected the world is. And I almost feel like a broken record. I feel like we have heard this now so often since the pandemic started, but I think it really brought into focus for a lot of people um, how much we rely on each other across borders. There is nothing really, the borders are false and there's nothing really that separates us. Certainly the virus knows no boundaries, Um, but, but also other, other viruses, other, other pandemics like that of racism um, also knows no boundaries. And I think that that has also come into focus uh, more recently as we start thinking more broadly about how we relate to one another. And so for African-Americans, I think it's really important to understand the role that colonialism has played and continues to play in our daily lives the the role that white supremacy as it was born out of colonialism or vice versa however you want to look at it um plays out in today's society all over the world and when we under when we can understand how it is all interrelated we no longer think of ourselves as just african americans in the united states but see our how we fit into a global puzzle of, of um, well, of white supremacy that we need to overcome in terms of <clears throat> we need to work together um, to overcome those same issues that we find all over the place, all over the world. So you compared racism to a pandemic. Kind of elaborate on, on that, that thought process. Um, actually wrote 
I wrote a piece. Um, actually, it was just published a little while ago, but I had been thinking about it since the pandemic started and since we all had to retreat inside and all we had was time to think. Um, I started thinking about how pervasive racism is and um, it's really work that I've been doing for a long time just trying to piece these things together. I, I'm, I am a Latin Americanist by training, I guess, by education, uh, even though my mother is Liberian. And so for me, you know, I feel the African piece. I am drawn to Latin America. And the tie that binds all of that is being Black, being African, because we are all connected. And for me, the pandemic just allowed me to sit back and think about how, how interconnected we are in that space and all of the, the barriers and obstacles that are put in our path because of the color of our skin. And um, it's, it, is, it is a pandemic because it does not know boundaries. It is everywhere. It is pervasive. And, and until we can find a way to <clears throat> work together, and I think this is, this is what Ralph Bunch was doing and, and many of his time, including my grandfather, um, until, until we come together as a people of African descent and, and realize and understand our connectedness across boundaries, we are not going to be successful in eradicating it. So most things that we identify in a health sense as a pandemic has a vaccine. Do you, do you see society coming up with a remedy or a vaccine for racism anytime soon? Or what all needs to be done to... You had mentioned about understanding, but what what really needs to be done to uh, eradicate racism? Um, I do believe that understanding is one vaccine. I think it has to be a multi-pronged approach. Um, I think that it can't be just the work of Black people. I think it has to be the work of everyone to understand the historic inequities that have plagued us the, around the world forever um, and and everybody is going to have to do their part um, I I hope I, I you know I run an international affairs center and the primary one of the primary things that we do there is um, is provide study abroad opportunities for our students and on the surface level that sounds kind of like a oh you know that's a great opportunity that's fun whatever but at its core, what it is doing when we send our students out into the world is it is building those bridges and those relationships and allowing our students to understand their place in the world as seen from outside of their comfort zone. And it allows them to build relationships with people of different backgrounds, different religions, different languages, different cultures, etc., and vice versa. And if we could get the, if we could just get that up to scale <laughs> like i think we would see a huge impact in 
how we move forward. Um, I mean, I think we have started to see it as, as the number of students going abroad has increased. Unfortunately, the number of students of color going abroad has been very slow to increase. But again, it takes everybody to be able to, um, to experience people in different ways in different places uh, to understand better their own place and the work that they have to do in order to um, kind of level out uh, this, the world um, in terms of inequities, imbalances. Well, that's good. And, and you're good at this because you you brought it back to my next question, which is, which is basically asking you to kind of brag about the different programs that are available at the uh, Ralph Bunch Center. It would be my pleasure. <laughs> um, so as, as I mentioned, we do, um, we do run most of the study abroad for undergraduate students at Howard University. And I've been at Howard almost eight years. And in eight years, we have increased the number of students participating. This is pre-pandemic. Number of students participating um, almost 300%. Um, so we're headed in the right direction. The pandemic put a, you know, threw a wrench in the whole situation. So we're having to build that up again from scratch because essentially there are no students left on campus as students who had an experience abroad and they're the ones who are the best ambassadors for getting their peers to participate. So we do that. We run the Patricia Roberts Harris Fellowship Program, which is, um, Patricia Roberts Harris was a distinguished is a was a distinguished Howard University alumna, but she was also the first black female ambassador for the U.S. government to Luxembourg, and she was the first black female cabinet secretary in for housing and human development in the Carter administration. She was also the first dean, female dean of the Howard University Law School. She was the first of many things, and when she passed in her estate, she left an endowment to fund uh, Howard University students to be able to accept unpaid internships um, in, in Washington to support careers in public or public service or international affairs as those were her two tracks. And um, it was dormant for a while when I arrived, we resurrected it a few years ago and, and very happily this year received a grant from the Carnegie Corporation of New York to support um, a, a separate track that is focused exclusively on international affairs. So our students will be able to have international internships fully funded through this grant um, that will allow them to go abroad and do internships that, you know, they could go to The Hague, they could go to Geneva, they could go to the African Union in, in Addis. They could go to any number of places um, <clears throat> fully funded and uh, we're really excited about that. And other, the students on the domestic track <clears throat> will have internships domestically in a variety of organizations, NGOs, <clears throat> government agencies in the US. Um, so that's the other main program. And then we sponsor, <clears throat> sorry, we administer programs for the State Department and US Agency for Inter International Development, as well as the US Department of Agriculture and all of their foreign service um, programs. We um, administer graduate fellowship programs, the Wrangell, Pickering, and Payne Fellowship, um, 
for state and USAID, and then APHIS, and um, the other one is escaping me for USDA. But all of those agencies have foreign service um, programs, and they're all efforts to help diversify the foreign service of those agencies so that the foreign service reflects the true face of America in all of its colors and other varying identities. So those are the main activities of the Bunch Center. Um, but like I said, we just advocate generally for internationalization across the institution um, and bringing the world to to Howard. So we do programming as well. We have we have a program next week as we lead up to the African Leaders Summit um, on women in trade in Africa and the diaspora with Secretary Raimundo from Commerce and the U.S. Trade Representative from uh, Ambassador Tai from U.S. Trade Representative. So um, we do a lot of programming to help, you know, all of our students cannot, can't, well, if I had my way, all of our students would go abroad, but they can't all go abroad. And so we have to bring the world to campus. And so we do that through our programming. And that's interesting because so you, so you, actually have a farming component in this and and i i just naturally assumed that it was strictly like a political diplomatic training but you you do farming training agricultural training as well that's that's pretty good well it's uh it's actually um you know the usda has a lot of has different programs and the usda has a foreign service and the particular program that we work that we are working on um, has to do with uh, training veterinarians. It's in partnership with Tuskegee. And so we, we administer the program, we send students to Tuskegee to get their masters in veterinary science um, and other related uh, uh, courses. Um, and then they go into the USDA's foreign service. Okay, that's pretty cool. Um, why were you drawn to work at the Ralph Bunch Center, and what do you want to accomplish while you're directing the center? Now, it sounds like that you kind of came in, I heard you say that you had to kickstart a program that had been dormant. Uh, so in in your direction, what what would you like to see the center expand to become? But but first, ask, answer the question: Why did you decide? Yeah, that's the job for me. This is what I want. Um, so I saw the job posting. A family friend shared it with me, and I obviously I know Howard well. I've done a lot. I had done a lot of work with Howard previously, and obviously have a bazillion relatives who graduated from Howard, as many people do, um, and. The Bunch Center had always been this uh, this place that I wasn't quite sure what it was, and I had never I, I had never you know participated. But as I as I looked at it more closely, and the work that it was doing, I think at the time that I first heard about it, Ambassador Horace Dawson was the director, and um, <clears throat> you know I was intrigued. And when the so when the job came up, it just it seemed like a natural fit for me because um, I I knew the impact that HBCUs have had 
on the world and I knew the impact that HBCUs could continue to have on the world. And at Howard, um, you know, given its location and its privileged location in the nation's capital um, with access to so many things, the, the potential to build was too good to pass up. And I was drawn to the potential uh, the potential for a Howard University to really change, literally change the game. And it's exciting to be a part of it. And I, I like I said, I've been there almost eight years. I still feel brand new. It's every, no day is exactly the same. And, um, you know, it's, 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 it's really quite thrilling to be able to be a part of something that I know has had and will continue to have such a huge impact on the world. And and what really gets me are the students. And um, like we have students right now who are attending the first session of the UN Permanent Forum of People of African Descent, because we're in the UN's decade of people of African descent, which most people in this country don't know. Um, there's a couple years left, but anyway, there are 12 Howard University students, mostly from the law school. I think there's one undergraduate student who uh, presented this morning on the sustainable development goals and how they are or are not being implemented by their hometowns in the United States, in the United States, and how that impacts black people. And I just think that that's the kind of work that Howard University needs to be doing. And my colleague, Justin Hansford is over there with them. He's a mem elected member of the permanent forum and the uh, and the director of the Thurgood Marshall Civil Rights Center at the law school, and um, <clears throat> that's the work, and 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 it's just exciting to be a part of it every day. So, what what further would you like to accomplish uh, mm. at the center? Well, I would love for at some point for how all Howard University students to be required to study abroad or have some kind of international experience, baby steps. <clears throat> we have a couple of colleges who are headed in that direction, so that's good. Um, <clears throat> I would like to have, in, in my long-term vision, is a Howard University School of International Service is my long-term vision. Um, it's been something that uh, I think faculty members at Howard have been talking about since at least the 60s, um, and I just want it to happen because, again, Howard is in a privileged location and we have, we are well positioned, I think, to, to support that kind of an endeavor. The history of our institution with people like Ralph Bunch, like Merce Tate, like uh, E. Franklin Frazier, and many others who taught here, and people who are here now, like Dr. Clarence Lusane, like Dr. Krista Johnson, like Dr. Uh, Jarpa Dawuni, uh, and many, many others, there are, there's no reason why we should not be actively training our students to serve the world, whether it's through the foreign service or any other type of international service. I don't see it as a school just for preparing people to enter the U.S. foreign service as diplomats, but rather how can we be servants, servant leaders in every discipline around the world? Why do you believe a number of young African-American political science majors don't get involved in a career pertaining to international affairs? 
I think that's changing. I know when I first started at Howard, Howard didn't have an international affairs major, and they've since created it, and the number of students interested in it are skyrocketing, skyrocketing. Like, they went from no program, I would say five years ago, to now over 150 students as declared international affairs majors. I think that, um, I mean, I think there's room for everybody. I think that there is a lot going on in this country and we need to have black political scientists that are focused on this country. But I also think that it's important to know and recognize and understand that the things that are happening to black people in the United States of America are happening to black people all over the world. And collectively is how we can address them. This is what this is what Ralph Bunch did at the United Nations. This is what this is how the United Nations impacted the civil rights movement in the United States because they reached outside the United States. And so I think we just need to remember that and and figure out the best way to utilize the global platform to achieve uh, a, a world without racism and discrimination. All right. Now, I'm a Jackson State alum, and I've been hearing all this good stuff you're talking about, about Howard University and all that. But like you said, a bazillion people went there, and I've had family members go there as well. So how can people get more information about the Ralph Bunch Center? And what is the process for students that are interested in attending Howard? How can they get involved in, in, in the center? So we have a website, it's global.howard.edu, and a lot of information can be found there. We're also very active on our social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Um, Instagram and Twitter is at uh, HU Bunch Center, and don't forget the E in Bunch. Um, and then Howard, uh, Ralph J. Bunch International Affairs Center dash Howard University on Facebook. Um, we also do a newsletter, a monthly newsletter, which you can sign up for through the uh, website. And I mean, we try to communicate um, as much as possible about the work that we're doing. If students are interested, they can reach out through any of those uh, platforms and, and you know, we'll be in touch. But um, yeah, just apply to Howard the regular admissions office program and come on down and see us as soon as you get here. It's important for students to come and talk to us in their first year so we can plot and plan the next four years and how we're going to keep them engaged globally. All right. Well, one last thing before I let you go. Um, I had the privilege of having on a program a lady named Colleen Watson. Does that name? Colette. 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 I'm sorry. Colette Watson. Yes, indeed. Okay. All I right. listen to that. That's my cousin. Okay. All right. All right. So go ahead and send a shout out to your cousin. <laughs> hey, cousin. See? We're doing the work. It's in our DNA. It is. It is. And, and amazing. She, and she, she's probably going to listen to this podcast, too. She's been a regular listener and stuff. So I appreciate that. And I appreciate you taking the time uh, to, to brag about the work that you're doing uh, and, uh, Happy holiday season to you. Thank you for allowing me to brag about the work that we're doing. I appreciate it. And happy holidays to you as well. All right. All right, guys, we're going to catch y'all on the other side.
All right, and we are back. Ladies and gentlemen, I just want to thank uh, soon-to-be Dr. Hope for uh, doing the interview. Um, as you can tell by a lot of these guests that I have, that a lot of these people are really, really special people, but a lot of them don't seek fame. A lot of them don't speak, seek a lot of attention. They just are about doing the work. And if you can tell by that conversation, uh, Miss Hope is is about that business. She's about uplifting young people and and expanding their worldview, literally, right? And so again, you have that information from her. Uh, if if you know of some young people who are considering college and that sounds appealing to them to be able to study abroad uh, and learn about different nations, different cultures than that program at, at Howard, the uh, uh, Ralph Bunch International Center, uh, International Affairs Center is available to them. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I did have to put my Jackson State plug in there. And I know Jackson State doesn't, I don't think, they they have an international visitor center, right? And Jackson State's thing was for people from other countries to come to Mississippi to come to Jackson State. And I know that we hosted a lot of people. Shout out to my my former colleague, my teacher, my mentor, Hilman Frazier, for being basically the ambassador uh, to make all that happen. Uh, he was bringing folks from all over the globe to the Capitol building and he's still doing it. And he's been an election observer in other countries for decades. Right. And so, you know, that program is over 20 years old. I know uh, at Jackson state. So, and the other HBCUs are doing things. And there was an effort with NBCSL, to connect HBCUs with the USDA to help in Africa, especially the farmers there, uh, to do some work, you know, to learn how to grow other crops to sustain an income outside of their cash crop, like uh, cocoa or, you know, coffee or whatever. So uh, that's why, you know, and I, and I just think that, in this time where you can use a device in your hand and talk to people from all over the globe uh, and learn about the world that we live in uh, in split seconds, it makes sense for us, especially as black people, to be concerned about what's going on outside of our space, outside of our community. We need to know what's going on in the world so we know how that's going to affect us down the line, whether it's, you know, whether you're going to have a job or not, you know, how much you're going to pay for gas, a lot of this stuff now, basically everything that we deal with, the clothes that we wear is an international connection. So we just need to, if we, if we don't understand it as collectively as whole, we need to, and we need to embrace it because I think, black people would be better off if we looked at the world in a global view and not just as an American view, but that's my opinion. 
Anyway, we're going to get off that. And we're going to, we are going to talk about something close to home. Uh, we're going to talk about marriages, especially marriages in the black community. And so I have this brother on who's going to talk about that and uh, somebody that's basically made this his life work to work on improving black marriages. And so his name is Chris A. Matthews. Chris is an award-winning marriage counselor clinical addiction specialist and the author of the book, finding your relationship fix the four reasons couples seek counseling. Chris specializes in helping the marriage underdog who are high earning couples that have a greater risk of divorce. Chris has been featured on DL Hughley radio show, black enterprise, black news network, ABC's here and now good day. DC picks 11's New York living and NPR radio. In addition to helping couples develop healthy marriages, Chris's most important jobs are husband to his wife of 14 years and father to their three children. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor and privilege to present to you and to have on the podcast, Mr. Chris A. Matthews. All right, Chris Matthews. How you doing, brother? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's it's always good to have you, brother. I, I appreciate you coming on and um uh taking the time out to talk about your passion on the show. So let's let's go to the very beginning. What led you to pursue marriage counseling as a vocation? So I was led into the field of marriage counseling. Uh, really from personal experience. My wife and I, we were 19 in college. Uh, we were sophomores at two universities separate from each other, uh, about three hours apart. And we unexpectedly got pregnant after 18 months of dating. I did what a lot of people would do. Uh, you tend to seek out counselor advisement. So I went to my university's counseling center, looked around. There were no clinicians present that were male or persons of color. So I went to my church, met with my pastor, had a great prayer, but I wasn't given any direction when it came to identifying tools and what was required to be successful in marriage and fatherhood. So after about five years, my wife and I graduated, we got married, and we picked up all the resources possible we could find on the topics of marriage and healthy relationships. And then what I realized is that I wanted to go back to school, get a master's degree and help other couples that were like my wife and I. But there's one story in particular that stands out. I recall being in a public health class. It was Foundations of Public Health. And there was a video played that promoted breast cancer screenings for black women. In the video, it had an orphan child. He was a black male, he was about 14, and he had a tear coming down his face. And the promotion was gearing women to protect themselves so they don't leave their ch their children abandoned. And I recall raising my hand and asking the professor, well, sir, where's the, the father? And the professor said to me that the video had to be authentic and that looked like not not promoting fathers because they're typically not in the, the houses or the, the families of black men, I mean, or black families. And at that moment, I just remember a fire burning deep inside of me because I didn't want to be 
a projection of what I saw in that video. Being you, raised from a two-parent household, I knew that wasn't true. Right. And so I'm a I'm a address that particular point cuz it's it kind of it falls into a question I've got later on for you. Um but besides that video, what what has made you so passionate about saving black marriages? The stigma. I believe that we are so immersed with media and all of the different messages that tear down the black family, tear down black men. And I fit into a category of prominent black figures. My grandfather, my father, my uncles. I have so many good examples of black men and I want to be a representation of that and fighting against the machine that tells everybody out there to be afraid of black men or black men aren't providers or black men don't take care of their kids. And that's really where my passion and fire burns. And then raising two young black boys. I'm an example in my household. And I just want to make sure that I'm using my gifts and talents to promote that message of positive masculinity, positive black malehood, fatherhood, positive black marriages. Right. And so specifically with marriages, tell me some benefits of of black couples being married as opposed to uh, not being married, cohabitating? So economically, there's a marriage wage premium. And research indicates that men who get married can gross up to 40% more revenue over the course of their career compared to men that don't get married. Outside of the financial benefit, marriage encompasses a level of commitment. And those principles require discipline. So when you think about what it takes to be successful in anything that you do, it's a consistent effort. The skills that are required to manage a healthy marriage are transferable across all areas of your life. Other benefits include that married men live longer. Married men tend to have lower levels of mental health issues and concerns. Married men tend to go to the doctor more often and acquire health health care because they have a spouse and they have those additional pressures and responsibilities to take care of a family. So the whole familial unit coming together in addition to that pressure of having to take care of someone beyond just yourself produces a level of character that can transfer across your entire life when it comes to being productive, when it comes to being successful. Yeah, and you know, that's a that's a thing about two things you said about going to the doctor, right? Because that's always been something uh, that black men seem to have an aversion to. And that's a whole nother show to talk about that. And then, and then I used to sell insurance. I used to sell preemie uh, burial insurance. And I could always talk to women about it, but it was hard to get men to talk about planning for the inevitable, right? But, you know, when you when you really have somebody else that you have to take care of, then it's easier to have those discussions as opposed to if you're single or not. So, so but speaking about single, uh, according to the 2020 census, 51.4% of black men and 47.5% of black women have never been married at all. 
why do you think there is a hesitancy for black people to get married in this day and time? There's a hesitancy for black people to get married because we don't have a lot of positive examples of what a healthy marriage looks like. When I initiate therapy, one of the first things that I do with my couples is a genogram. And that's a fancy word for a family map or a family tree. When I collect that data, I would just guesstimate that roughly only eight out of 10 of the couples that I see are, excuse me, only two out of 10 of the couples that I see have a positive example of what marriage looks like. So that means eight out of 10 are used to seeing infidelity, substance use, physical violence and abuse decimate what a marriage is supposed to look like. So if you don't have examples of what a marriage is supposed to look like, or if you think that marriage is just going to create more harm than good, why would you go toward it? It's not an attractive option for a lot of black folk if we don't have those positive examples. And I think that just comes by way of not doing the work to heal past family trauma wounds that then bleed over into other relationships. There was one uh, research article I was reading. If you marry a person that was divorced or excuse me, had parents that were divorced and you also have parents that were divorced and never married, that increases your chances of divorce 200%. So, so if you're used to seeing people have failed marriages, what's the attraction to get married at that point? Yeah, I, I get that. And, you know, uh, having gone through that cycle myself, right? Been, I've been married three times and divorced twice. Um, you know, I, I worry about how that looks for my son, right? How he views uh, uh, marriage and, 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 and whatever, because, you know, for most of his life, his mom and I were not together. So as overwhelming majority of his life. So I, I do worry about how that's going to impact him uh, based on conversations I've had. He hasn't seemed like it, 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 it's, it's a thought in his mind, but I do wonder about what kind of impact that would have on him. Is that something that you see in your counseling sessions about people being hesitant about getting married? Absolutely, because thirty six only thirty percent only thirty six percent of black men are married to a spouse they have a child with. So seventy two percent of black men have children outside of wedlock. We are needing to reshape how we view the family system. Blended families are very prevalent nowadays. When I typically work with a couple. That's a primary concern they're bringing into counseling. How do they navigate and manage children across different households? It doesn't necessarily lead to a death sentence, meaning your son is not going to be plagued when it comes to developing healthy relationships just because you, the father, has had multiple relationships or marriages that didn't work out. That's where the education comes into play. I'm a firm believer that the same way we talk about uh, drug prevention and premarital sex prevention, all of these things we prevent, we have to turn the tide and educate youth at an early age when it comes to establishing healthy relationships with people. Most marriages tend to fail because of the lack of communication or the inability to communicate properly. If you help 
empower your son with skills to establish healthy communication patterns, to be able to express emotion and identify their feelings in a healthy manner, then those skills are going to be transferable as he begins to date in court and establish his own relationships. So in turn, when we educate people and give them the tools needed to develop those relationships, we can then begin to reverse the tide on this failed marriage pandemic, or excuse me, this failed marriage epidemic that we have going on now where 50% of first marriages don't make it. And then those numbers increase for each marriage, the numbers of divorce actually go up. Yeah, so it's it's almost like it goes up exponentially like 10%. So second marriages fail at like 60% and third marriages fail at like 80%. Is that, that correct? Right, they're in the high 70s. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what about the influence of celebrities, right? We have a number of celebrities, black and white, that, you know, have never married, but they have cohabitated. They've lived together for a long time. They have kids together uh, and they are successful. They, they keep doing what they're doing. How much of an impact do you think that has on, on society, especially in the black community? And how do you try to get people to see that it's more beneficial to be married than to emulate those celebrities. So to your point, there are a higher rate, there are more higher rates of cohabitation nowadays than there are marriage. The, the census data has indicated that within the last year, cohabitation has gone up 10% and it's rising. Celebrities present a facade in my opinion because when you don't marry you're articulating that you still have one foot in and one foot out there's a lack of commitment marriage is simply a choice it's a choice to say i'm committing legally and i'm committing under god to this one person we all know that if you are a contracted employee right and you're a 1099 compared to a w-2 that's a different level of commitment that you have with that company. The same with marriage. People who marry are saying, when I get upset with you, or if I'm mad, I might step away, but you know I'm coming back. When you're cohabitating or just dating, when I get upset with you or I'm mad, I might not come back because I don't have to. There's no commitment binding me to stick it out. I, I saw a post on Facebook and a person was celebrating 20 years of marriage. And in the caption person stated, I'm not just celebrating 20 years of marriage. I'm celebrating 20 years of forgiveness. I'm celebrating 20 years of learning how to communicate. I'm celebrating 20 years of disappointment. I'm celebrating 20 years of working with a person to become better every day. So marriage is a lifestyle. And when you choose not to marry, you're choosing to basically say, I'm not going to be all in. I'm not going to sign up for that commitment. So on the surface, we can co-parent, we can share resources, and we can, you know, send emojis on Facebook and everybody thinks we have this perfect relationship. But when everything comes to a halt and we now have a trauma or there's some type of issue, it's easy to break up. We think about Nia Long and her boyfriend. Infidelity broke them up. I believe recently, I think just a couple of weeks ago, she posted that they now separated. They, they weren't married. 
I treat couples all the time that have encountered infidelity and they rebuild a marriage because that commitment was there from day one. It wasn't just a pass to leave when we get upset or hurt each other. Right, right. That's the first time I think I've heard <laughs> the the comparison between couples that cohabitate and independent contractors. I think that's pretty slick. I like that. Um, all right. You kind of mentioned it uh, in that last answer. So let me go into it a little deeper. In your book, Finding Your Relationship Fix, you state that safety is the number one reason why black couples seek counseling. And you put infidelity and financial security under that category. Explain why those issues fall under safety. Starting with infidelity, that falls under safety because when a person cheats, the individual that was cheated on begins to question their own value and self-worth. That's the initial blow. What did I not do right to allow or force my partner to leave me and to breach our marital vow? The other component of infidelity looks like an environment that was created, which drove someone to seek needs that weren't getting met within the marital union. When I treat infidelity with couples, once we've established the commitment to stay and work it out, we have to grieve the old marriage and rebuild a new marriage. Mm. When it comes to the financial part of your question, our connection with money is established before we get married. It usually comes by way of our family of origin. If we didn't have money, then we see, we see money as the all-be-all. We think in our mind that it's a source of happiness. And if we did have money, we see it as a sense of entitlement or power. So how your family has helped you see money is very important because outside of infidelity, money issues are one of the primary causes that couples split. And it's not because of the lack of or the amount of having money, it's really about the mentality and the attitudes. Because when you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the first foundation is gonna be basic necessities. And money tends to align with your basic necessities, shelter, things of that nature. So when you're playing around with not managing money correctly, and based on research, there was one article that articulated that your chances of divorce are three times higher if you're having issues or conversations or fights around money at least three to four times a week. So money really aligns with our connection to getting our basic needs met. And if that's tainted or threatened, then the relationship itself won't have a firm foundation to stand on. Yeah, that I agree with that. I think that, um, you know, you got to have a level of trust uh, in both of those instances, right? You have to have a level of trust as far as a person being responsible financially, and you have to have a level of trust as far as that person being monogamous, right? And, but that, that kind of leads to a... So let me, let me ask you this question. Uh, I've, I've been dealing with... Uh, somebody I know, young person, who has now gotten off into this uh, polygamy thing. And, you know, try to tell him, one, is illegal, right, in the United States. <laughs> You're not supposed to be doing that. But number two, it's, it's, it, it, it kind of falls into 
the same thing with infidelity to me as far as like it's a bailout. It's not a real commitment. Do you you agree with that? And just just kind of talk about because like I said, it these young people are reaching out for stuff, and so people are taking advantage of that. And I think that this whole concept of polygamy wrapped around religion is just basically people trying to take advantage of these young folks in their mind. That's a great question. When you think about polygamy, that's having the ability to marry or, or have more than one husband or wife. And in our country, you can't marry more than one person. There are countries and, cult- and people that come from different cultures that I've counseled that are legally able to have more than one wife. And what they've shared with me is that when you do engage in having more than one wife, just speaking from the husband perspective, each wife has to have the equal benefit of resources. So if you buy one wife a house, the other wife has to have a house. If you do for one set of children, the other set of children have to be done for. And that's usually done from a communal a communal perspective to ensure that resources are equally distributed because they're tend to be in those environments more women than men. So it's used as a tool for economical purposes and just, you know, supporting family. To be able to have more than one wife just for sexual gratification purposes only would would be more just about lust than how it's used in other countries per se, right? So I think you have to really drill down and understand the cultural context in which polygamy is presented. But in American society or where we live in our country, I I see that when I speak to those that do engage with uh, entertaining multiple relationships at one time and everyone knows about it, there's a consensus when that happens. They've said that the management of jealousy is one of the major threats. So acknowledging to your point, I'm going to this person or I'm bringing this individual into our relationship because I'm not completely satisfied with just what you and I have. At that point, and this is an opinion, it it would feel that you're saying to this person, we aren't able to meet each other's needs just with us, so we have to find outside sources. Why not just be single and just date multiple people? I think when we start to tarnish the union of marriage, that's when I tend to have an issue with it, because no one has told you you have to be married. There are a lot of people who are single and who date multiple individuals and they're completely happy and fun. Excuse me, you're fine. So I think keeping marriage in its place, marriage is designed for two people. That's my opinion and I believe in that. Um, If you want to engage with multiple partners, do that. Just don't call it marriage. Right, I, I agree with that. So... Getting back to the story where you were talking about the video that you saw in college, which the audacity of that, you handled that better than I would have. I'm going to tell you that now. You expressed concern that the media and politics are misrepresenting black men and their roles as fathers and husbands. Kind of elaborate on that. I believe the media misrepresents black men as fathers based on how they look at the data. There's a high number of non-residential African-American fathers. So those are fathers that may parent a child and they're not currently with the child's mother or they're cohabitating, but the data doesn't include them because there's not a marital union established. 
those men, non-residential African-American fathers, are involved, but they're not getting the credit of being involved dads because there's not a marital union in play. And I, I believe that if we look at the data, because if we're just going, going, do you have a marriage license or not? I don't think that's an accurate tool to use to determine if a man is involved in their child's life. The other piece to that, a lot of people have this, this misconception that because child support is paid, that automatically gives the father rights to be involved in the child's life. That's not the case. Having the opportunity to work with fatherhood programs in my region, I find that these men may be paying child support, but yet have to go through a whole nother subset of legal, uh, you know, cases, uh, have a whole nother subset of legal um, meetings or trials or processes to be involved in the kid's life. So I think we got to tighten up the system to make it easier for men that want to be involved to be involved. Yeah, and, I, and I, it's definitely policy uh, without getting into a whole lot of stuff. Uh, you know, Lyndon Johnson, when he came up with the Great Society, came up with what we now call TANF, right? But there seems to be a penalty if that single mom that's raising a couple of kids now brings a man into that household. It seems like that you know, the policy rewards her more for being single trying to raise two kids than to have a, a strong nucleus to have a husband in that in that household um so i i really think that you you're touching on something that that really needs to be addressed on a policy level i completely agree i, I believe that the policies do need to be looked at because you will find that it can be easily discouraging for a man who wants to be involved, but yet we have so much room now for gatekeeping to take place. And gatekeeping is when the mother deliberately withholds the child from an active father because that father may choose not to be romantically involved with that mother. And the gatekeeping concept is something that researchers have studied and have written articles about. And I had the opportunity to read those studies. Um, Dr. Um, Armada, I may be mispronouncing the gentleman's name, but he had over like 16 published studies around gatekeeping and, and, and non-residential African-American fathers. And I just found that if we know this is happening, but yet there's no policymaker out there saying we need to do something about this because the evidence demonstrates that children obtain their esteem, their esteem from the father. The father's involvement within a child's life between the ages of zero to five is where attachment's established. So there's research that indicates when an involved, active father is present, there's less chances of that child using substances. It reduces their rate of teen pregnancy. It's endless data that shows parental involvement from the father can help put that child on a better trajectory for their entire lifespan, but yet that needs to occur between those attachment years of zero to five. And and we're getting pressed for time, but I understand that you, dealing with this policy aspect of it, when you and your your wife, future wife, were, were dating, y'all had to make a decision about when to get married based on your financial aid. Is that is that correct? Absolutely. Because of the FAFSA reform 
we used our parents. And if we would have had, if we would have gotten married, we would have lost the benefits and, and, and grants that we were using to finish our degree out in college. So we got married three months after graduating because my wife was able to obtain benefits as a single mother in the county that she was living in at the time attending school, which afforded her the right to reduce house. It afforded her the right for our child to have benefits with health care and it afforded my child the right to have free daycare and child care. So if I would have gotten married to my wife at the time, those benefits wouldn't have been available. Right. All right. So if people want to get a hold of your books and and to have you uh, you know do counseling or to speak, how do people get in touch with you? I have a personal website, chrisamatthews.com. Uh, two T's is spelled Chris, C-H-R-I-S-A, Matthews, M-A-T-T-H-E-W-S.com. I'm also on all the social media platforms, Chris A. Matthews underscore for Instagram, um, Facebook, Chris A. Matthews. Uh, you can send me a message. I'm, I'm really accessible, and I'd love to to entertain in, anybody that has any questions or would like to gain services. All right. Before you go, in one word, what is the most important thing, other than buying your book, of course, what's the most important thing that people can do to save their marriage, in one word? Commitment. That's the one word, commitment. Make the choice every day and think of it as a lifestyle. And if you choose to commit to your partner, you can save and rebuild your marriage. And we're going to make that the last word. Thank you, Chris Matthews, for coming on the show, brother. I appreciate that. Appreciate your passion and your commitment to using your talents to build up the community through making sure that we have strong marriages in our community. So I thank you. I thank you for, for coming on. Thank you for having me. All right, guys, we're going to catch you all on the other side. All right, and we are back, ladies and gentlemen. So, before I introduced my previous guests, I kind of told y'all to pay attention to what's happening in Washington <laughs> when it comes to this uh, Congress and how things are going to shake out. Well, I couldn't even finish recording this episode of the A Moment with Eric Fleming podcast without one of those changes actually happening. Yes, what I feared would happen, happened. The gentle lady from Arizona, Christian Cinema, has decided that she is no longer a Democrat. She is now an Arizona independent. And the minute you know, it was always a vibe that I had, right? It was always something I kind of felt she was going to do. And I, you know, I just wasn't going to speak it, but, you know, Joe Manchin couldn't do it because he's really a Democrat. He's just 
Democrat in the state that Donald Trump won by 40 points, right? And a West Virginia Democrat is different than a mainstream national Democrat, I guess, for lack of a better comparison. But um, yeah, Christian Cinema has decided to be an independent. Now, what she says that she's still going to honor her committee assignments that were given to her by Chuck Schumer and her and Schumer met before she made the announcement from what I understand. And she will not (laughs) caucus with the Democrats. So it's going to be kind of hard on the scorecard to say 50-49 or 51-49. I don't know. All I know is this. I knew it. I knew she was going to do it. I knew it. You know, my angels said, believe them when they they show you who they are, right? So I knew it. I knew she was going to do that. Now, I think that makes it harder for the Democrats to get her out in 2024. Uh, I understand there's a congressman in Arizona that was going to challenge her in the primary. But now that she's not going to be in the Democratic primary, she's going to be sitting waiting for whoever comes after her, excuse me, in November. Uh, It's going to be interesting to see how that shakes out. Um, And it possibly could mean that it'll be three people running for the United States Senate in Arizona instead of just two. And I am not familiar with Arizona law. I do not think they're a runoff state like Georgia is or Mississippi, but uh, I think Arizona is more like Illinois, where it's like whoever's got the most votes that night wins. But it's going to be interesting to see how that works because from what I understand, the, the, the breakdown in Arizona is Republican, independent, then Democrat as far as number of voters, right? And Cinema was able to build to have a coalition of Democratic and independent voters. And so the question becomes now, does that give somebody like um, Carrie Lake or the young lady that ran twice for the U.S. Senate before as a Republican, the former Congresswoman. I can't remember her name. It's uh, Max Salty or something like that. Uh, please don't, you know, I, you know, I'm bad with names. So um don't know if that's going to develop. And that might be a Republican primary to determine who gets the nomination to go up against Cinema, And then if Gallego or another Democrat decides to run. And that might actually be a primary. Don't know. That might be a free fall too. So the 2024 senatorial election in Arizona has just gotten exciting. And 
and that's probably going to be the race to watch. And uh, Kamala Harris may have to curtail some of her plans <laughs> as vice president, uh, staying away from the Capitol building. So there's that. But I knew it. I just knew it. And this is one of those things where you hate to be right. But I knew it. I knew she was going to do pull this kind of a stunt. Uh, so there's that. Anyway, <laughs> let's uh, let's get ready to talk to our next guest. And I am really, really honored to have uh, this lady on the program. Uh, she has been somebody that has emerged over the last few years as an authority on authoritarianism. <laughs> and uh, when and I'll, I'll get into all that in the interview, but uh, her name is Ruth ben Giat. And uh, she is a professor of history and Italian studies at New York University. She is an MSNBC opinion columnist and columnist and commentator on CNN, MSNBC, and other media outlets about authoritarianism, fascism, and threats to democracy around the world. Her latest book, Strong Men from Mussolini to the Present, examines how illiberal leaders use corruption, violence, propaganda, and machismo to stay in power and how resistance to them has unfolded over a century. Ladies and gentlemen, it's truly an honor and a privilege to have on the podcast, Professor Ruth ben Giat. All right, Professor ben Giat, how are you doing, ma'am? I am well, thank you. All right. And um I just I just want you to kind of keep your professor hat on for a minute <laughs> as as we start and define authoritarianism in the simplest term for the audience. Yeah, the most basic it's when um the executive branch uh overwhelms the other branches of government. And in many of the people I've studied, um, uh, I call them personalist rulers. Uh, they, their own private financial or legal or other needs come to overwhelm uh, policy and dictate policy. So they turn all of the government apparatus into a self-serving enterprise. So that's also <clears throat> part of authoritarianism. Okay. Now, I first became aware of your work with two documentaries, How to Be a Tyrant and The Dictator's Playbook. What led you to become a respected expert in authoritarianism? Yeah, um, you know, it's interesting you, you when you've been in a career for a while. Um, I was I grew up in California and my little town near the beach, it, it happened that a lot of exiles from Nazism um, had been there. And 
although my family was not uh, involved in or affected by the Holocaust, so we didn't have any discussions of that at home. My mom's from Scotland and my dad's from the Middle East. I was very affected as a teenager with thinking about how these people had to leave and start all over again in California on the beach uh, half a world away. So I kind of kept that interest. And then I started to work and I I'd specialized in Italy and fascism. So I was doing this typical professor stuff. And then Trump came on the scene in 2015. And the minute I, I remember where I was, I saw him at a rally and he was doing this loyalty oath and he was retweeting white supremacists. And I thought, oh my God, this is familiar. I know what this is. And that's my, I changed my professional career. I'm still a professor, but I started writing for CNN and doing all this public stuff. And that led to, you know, being in documentaries and writing for MSNBC, doing TV as, as to warn the public that these things can happen anywhere. So why do you, to follow up on that, why do you think that people didn't catch it the way that you caught it when he was giving these speeches and uh, attracting certain people to his uh, to rally around him. Why do you think the American public just kind of either ignored it or didn't know what they were seeing? I think, uh, I know, it, it seems incredible, you know, when you think uh, end of January 2016, he, he, he said he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and not lose any followers. And that was, I was terrified. Like, that's not what regular Democrats with a small d say. That's what, you know, authoritarians say. I think that there was a lot of denial. Um, in fact, it's very interesting that two weeks after he did that, Jeff Sessions, you know, brought him into, started endorsing him. And Jimmy Fallon had him on his TV show. So he, he became mainstream after he started talking about shooting people. So, of course, not everybody was fooled. Um, there were plenty of people, you know, African-Americans pretty much knew well what it meant early on that he was uh, trying to cultivate neo-Nazis and extremists and became the vessel of racism. And he basically gave this big tent to all kinds of racists, right? Old racists, new racists. So um, I, I think there's just been this big denial also in recognizing that America also had an experience of authoritarianism in the South. And I'm not an American historian. My strength is that I study these other cases. And then I had never written on America before. I'm a child of immigrants from two different countries. And I was like, okay, this is pretty clear. <laughs> um, but you know, the thing about being in denial, because if you admit that there's a big threat to your democracy happening and there's this monster who's gaining uh, and going to become the president, maybe you have to do something about it. And a lot of people don't want to do anything about it. So you've kind of touched on my next two questions, but I, I, I want you to kind of <laughs> dig into it a little bit. In your book, Strongmen, you have a section in the beginning called Protagonists. And there are names that are expected. Amin... Hitler, Mussolini, Pinochet, Mobutu. But the very last name on the list is Trump. So, 
you kind of explain from an emotional standpoint is like something he did triggered, you know, something that you should be concerned about. But in a scholastic term, why would Trump qualify as a protagonist? Yeah, that's a great question. I also have in there Berlusconi in Italy. And so these are people. So, you know, the point of the book is to show how authoritarianism evolves. And never, I'm not comparing, I'm not saying that Trump's like Hitler um, or, you know, Berlusconi's like Mobutu, because in the 21st century, you don't shut down elections. Usually, they, of course, you have communist states, they don't have the one party states, but places like Hungary and what Bolsonaro was trying to do in Brazil, you keep elections going and then you kind of rig the system. And we have a lot of experience. Again, that was like a regional authoritarianism, Jim Crow. You rig the system, you domesticate the media. So you retain the fiction of democracy. In fact, Viktor Orban in Hungary, who the GOP today worships, they're always going to Hungary and he's their mentor. He calls his system illiberal democracy, even though there isn't much democratic about it. So I saw uh, Berlusconi and Trump as being in this in this, the, the goals they had were authoritarian goals. And so one of the things about Trump is that he, he was unlike any other president of either party. His goals were autocratic goals. He wanted to make money off of the presidency. And in fact, one third of his time, he spent visiting Trump branded properties. He didn't want to work as president. He wanted to make money. And then he wanted to energize all these racists and extremists so that he would have like a private army, uh, and, you know, that was beholden to him. And he used them on January 6th. And he wanted to domesticate the uh, the party through threatening them, blackmailing. And so he did stuff. His goals were just very, very different then. And that's that's why. And he didn't need to shut down, nor did he have the power to shut down other parties. So that's why he is in the book as the the end where we are right now in this legacy of authoritarianism but he also does a lot of things that the fascists did he's a superb propagandist he incites violence stuff like that so you you mentioned because Berlusconi like you said is then you're on your list too and I and I see comparisons with them because both of them have been CEOs both of them have done fat you know regardless of what Trump actually has in his bank account, he's, <laughs> he's one of the richer people in America. And, and Berlusconi is one of the wealthiest men in, in Italy. D do you see a parallel with people who have been at CEOs where all the authority kind of lies within them and then they transition into politics mm. and, and, is is that kind of a natural thing for people like that to 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 do? Because you can be authoritarian in your own business, right? Oh yeah, there's there's lots of little uh, you know little duches in in the business world, and um, and now we've got one of them uh, taking he's taken over Twitter, um, and it comes out how he's his company is racist and just like not surprising at all, right? So you know it's interesting. One of the things I was looking at in the book is when do these people have an appeal who come from outside of politics? And 
um, because it's not, it's very interesting. You have the CEOs that you mentioned, but then there's a whole bunch of people like Mussolini and Mobutu in the Congo, who was incredibly charismatic and charming. He was like de deadly charming, Mobutu. They were journalists. And so there are people who um, either were very skilled at mass communications and Berlusconi owned TV networks. Trump had a reality TV show. And so when they, they, they do well when people feel that the existing parties are not serving them. And so they kind of scan the political marketplace. And so that's what Trump did. He saw there was this, because he'd been a Democrat as well as a Republican, but he saw there was this void that he called them the forgotten, the like angry white you know, men mostly who felt that they were not served by either party and they were angry and this and that. And they felt, you know, there were real problems too, opioid addictions, you know, economic. I don't think the economic anxiety was the major driver, of course, but, and he found those people and he said, I love you, you are forgotten no longer. And so in a way it takes somebody like a marketer or a business person to scan the marketplace and say, oh, here's, here's a gap and I'm gonna fill it. So these people come in when there's like a, a void and they fill the void and then they have personality cults and the personality cult bonds everybody to them. And, and for that, they need to also know how to do propaganda and marketing. So um, there is this interesting connection. Yeah. It, it, that, when you, when you, when you break it down like that, because I forgot that Berlusconi was like a TV personality in Italy too. I, I knew he owned a television empire, but I didn't know he was actually had his own show. Um, he had a huge personality cult, I, I, the biggest since Mussolini. Um, I, unbelievable. Um, there was there was a study I cited in the book that there was a woman who psychologists interviewed. She had dementia. And she couldn't, as happens with people with dementia, she couldn't recognize her own family. The only two faces she recognized was Jesus Christ and Berlusconi. Wow. Because he was everywhere. Wow. Um, and so the, the lady that currently is the leader in Italy, she is she related to Berlusconi or she was like one of his apprentices or something? Yeah, she's a product of Mussolini because she's a neo-fascist. And she's a product of Berlusconi because... During his last government, um, she was a minister of youth. Okay. Um, in his, in his, so she's, yeah, she's bad news. She's uh, extremely, uh, she is a neo-fascist militant. She's trying to say she's a conservative, but she's, she's not. She believes you, know, you shouldn't build mosques in Italy. You should only speak Italian. She's very, very racist. Yeah, and it was a lot of blowback on Twitter, uh, especially when she won between those who call themselves conservatives here and, 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 and everybody else, basically, they kind of saw what you saw about, about yeah. her, her background, her rhetoric. So you also mentioned something about the Jim Crow South and uh, regional authoritarian authoritarianism. So I want you to do a PSA, right? <laughs> Why should African-Americans be concerned if America becomes an authoritarian nation? Well, uh, I mean, because uh, the this particular, um, well, like all the far right people around the world, um, 
there's a very clear agenda of the GOP and Trump to uh, protect what they call white Christian civilization. And everybody else is going to be disenfranchised. Um, there's also, uh, you know, there, there's it's not a, not a surprise that under Trump, uh, every kind of hate crime, including against African-Americans, skyrocketed. Um, you know, clear attempt to disenfranchise and silence. And then I'm, I'm also worried uh, when you have a rising authoritarianism, you always have to look at the police. And in, in many ways, again, I, I'm not a expert on, I'm not an expert on America. So I see these things from a lens abroad, even though I grew up here. Really, African-Americans have had to live in, in ways that resemble people in an authoritarian state that every time you go out of the house, you could be shot or you, you could be stopped driving in your car and arrested for nothing. And, and, that's, and I see this as this is the institutionalized racism, but I track these things like William Barr, who's a very dangerous individual, very dedicated to white Christian civilization. He's a Catholic. I looked at all of the uh, speeches he gave to the police, um, police benevolent society. They are declarations of war on African-Americans, on any dissidents. Um, they're very scary. Uh, they're very scary speeches. So I worry because of the availability of guns um, and mass shootings, uh, some of which, as in Buffalo, are explicitly targeting African-Americans, that the police would be further radicalized um, and African-Americans would be one of the main targets. So there's voting reasons, there's survival reasons, <laughs> um, there's ideological reasons, right? There, th these are, there, these, these, these movements are trying to wrench back the, the clock to say that you, you know, we're not a multiracial democracy. We're a white Christian, you know, minoritarian rule. They're trying to do it through force, through intimidation. And, and of course that's, that's very, uh, that's very scary. Yeah. But what scares me even more is the reason why I asked you that question in that way is because of, part of my job with this show is to try to get African-Americans to pay more attention to the politics. I don't want them to be political junkies, but I want them to, yeah. to understand that stuff that you see on TV that you think might be distant from you is actually having a major, major impact on your everyday life. And so, yeah. you know, when people, people have conversations in the community, they're talking like, well, yeah, they just they just talking. I mean, they they can't do that kind of stuff. It's like we we're a long way from that. That that hasn't happened in years. There's no way that anybody, let alone us, will allow that to happen. But I always make the argument that if we're disengaged, it mm -hmm. can happen. And that's usually how these people get in power, right? It is there's totally. there's there's the combination of anxiety uh, some kind of fear that is rallying people like Brexit, you know, for example, in England or and, and apathy that, 
the the population gets cynical and they don't think that anybody is going to do anything for them. And then here comes poof, this magical person that's going to fix everything. I might be oversimplifying it, but that, that, that's, yeah. Not at all. And I, and this is very important thing that's that you're doing with your show, because I also want to say with great love that it's, it's extremely upsetting after the toll of, um, the successes of the civil rights movement, the assassinations, to think that things might go backwards. And it's that's one reason people are just like, what do you mean? This can't happen. And, and the other thing is, I think that um, white liberals have not helped the cause by seeing certain populations in a very reductive way, like Latinos. Well, Latinos are going to vote Democratic because they have to. Well, the biggest new, um, what do you call them, supporters of the Republicans are Latinos. And so so there's been a kind of a blind spot. And I'm able to, again, I'm able to see these things because I don't, I, I never studied America except in school and they stand out to me. And I'm not, I'm free of these like, preconceptions, you know? So, but as painful as it is, and, and um, it's really important to see things realistically. And I struggle in my work. I, I want, I'm always doing that. I'm very blunt, but I don't want to demoralize people because if you demoralize people, then that that's not helping them to be engaged. So, and, and you have, you need to make them alert, but you don't want to paralyze them with fear. Right. So the, these are these are these are strategies and things to think about, but people do need to wake up um, because and, and and you know we also we didn't because Trump did his uh, election denial thing in January six. I really think we did not have time. We did not have the um, expanse as a people to celebrate the victory of Biden, especially Kamala Harris the first, you know, person of color woman to be a vice president. That's like huge. And yet we haven't been able to really celebrate that because that's what authoritarians do. They keep you in this constant state of having to be pushing back and it's exhausting. Yeah. We don't even have to go back 24 hours. I mean, just the blowback that I was watching on social media when Brittany Griner was set free from her captivity you would think that Americans would be, because I, I, I don't know if you remember, there was this guy, and I'll be real quick, this guy named Robert Goldman. He was like a naval officer. And Jesse Jackson went over, I think he was in Syria, and Jesse Jackson went mm-hmm. over and got him. And he was on the cover, not just of Jet, because he was black, but he was on the cover of the New York Times, everything else. This, this American came home. And it's like, Today, we're hearing U.S. Congress people saying, you shouldn't have got her. You should have got the white guy. You you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, it's it's like. in the open. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it's, (laughs) it's amazing. All right. Let me. It's the devaluing of of certain lives. That's why Black Lives Matter, the, the slogan means something because these people are saying that a white life is worth more. Yeah. It's yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so 
Uh, we're going to try to close it out, but I want to get in a couple more questions. Um, of the four states in the Democratic Republic, excluding the executive, right, because authoritarianism has to basically come from the executive, which one is the most vulnerable in an attempt to create an authoritarian regime? Is it the legislative, judicial, or the press? That's, that's a homage to, I guess, Mr. Jefferson when he say the fourth estate. <laughs> yeah, they're, uh, you, they're all vulnerable. I think the most, well, the, nowadays with social media, in a way, the press is, if you, as we've seen with Tucker Carlson, and if you can brainwash people um, and make them believe indeed that like, what is it, 40 million people believe that Trump won the election? So the press is very important. To ca it's called capture, autocratic capture. You have to capture them. But the judiciary, and we're seeing this with this very rogue Supreme Court now, at one fell swoop can make decisions that affect the lives of hundreds of millions. So um, that's why, you know, autocrats have a this process of autocratic capture and it includes all of those institutions you mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. I, I tend to think, you know, from what I've been able to study, um, it seems like to me the press is always the, where you get control of that first. So you can control the message and all that. Yeah. And then you can yeah. dictate who serves in the legislature, who gets to, on the judicial branch. But yeah, it, it, like you said, they're all vulnerable at this particular point. Um, your book is divided into three parts, getting to power, tools of rule, and losing power. So the hopeful thing I get out of that is that authoritarian rule doesn't last forever. The question I have is how hard is it to get out of authoritarian rule once it has been established? Yeah, it, it, um, it can be very difficult because there's usually a crackdown and, you know, many, many people are sent to jail and then they can't speak out and they, including judges. If you look at who, like Erdogan in Turkey, we don't hear about enough. He had a coup attempt against him. He was already becoming more authoritarian and he, he sent, um, he detained a hundred thousand people. He, he's doing things, mass jailing so that, a lot of opposition, the press has been totally domesticated. So he's got elections. He's the new style authoritarian, but it's going to be difficult to get rid of him. And some of these, the old school guys, they would stay there because they had one party states. They would stay there for decades. Right now, what hap what could happen is that um, we're seeing this with Putin. They construct these models of governance and Trump had it where you surround yourself with what is, I call the inner circle. And they have to have family members, so like sons-in-law are very common, flatterers, sycophants, and they are always firing people who are not flattering them enough. And so they get into this bubble, which is counterproductive for them. And they believe their own propaganda and their megalomania goes unchecked. Then they start making bad decisions. And that's what happened with Putin, where he started the war and he didn't listen to his military advisors. He didn't listen to people who knew about sanctions. He consulted with almost no one because he was in, I call the late autocracy, like the full ego phase. 
And and Trump did the same thing, and he had bad governance, um, and that's partly why he he lost. So that's one thing. They all do this. Mobutu did it, and uh, in the Congo, and he was stealing so much from people, and he wouldn't reform, he wouldn't liberalize, and he he was forced to go into exile. So um, that's that's something that comes from them. But the other thing is often you get nonviolent resistance and it's very difficult in a full on regime. But the, the lesson is that while we still have our rights, we have to use them. You know, in this country, they're trying to make protest uh, criminalized and more difficult. And then we go back to the police. It's very scary to go out, especially as a non-white person and, and protest. But we have to use all the rights that we have. Look what happened in the midterms. People were very defeatist, and then we, we had real gains because people exercised their voting rights. So, because once you lose those, it's really hard to get them back. All right. So, Professor, if if people, because I, I, I subscribe to you, well, yeah, I think I subscribe to your newsletter. Um, how do people get in touch with you other than enrolling at New York University? How do people <laughs> get in touch with you and subscribe to the newsletter and all that stuff? Yeah, I, so I have this uh, newsletter called Lucid, as in uh, L-U-C-I-D, a, a, a mind that is free of propaganda and what I call the fog of hatred. Um, and I write about all these uh, these topics we've been discussing. If you go to my website, um, which is www.ruthbengiat.com. You, you can sign up for the newsletter. Or on Twitter, I'm at uh, Ruth Bengiat altogether, no hyphen, and you can sign up for my newsletter there. All right. Well, Professor Bengiat, thank you so much for taking the time out. I wish we could talk more because, you know, and I really like the fact that you kind of made yourself an American Tocqueville, right? that you're, you're looking at what's going on from basically kind of an outsider's lens. Um, yeah. And I think, and, and, and it gives a lot of clarity to a lot of the things that, that people are inundated with every day. So again, I, I thank you for taking the time to come on the podcast. Appreciate you. It's a pleasure. All right, guys. And we'll catch y'all on the other side. All right, and we are back. So let me just close out by thanking my guests, Tunisia Hope, Chris A. Matthews, and Ruth Ben-Giat. I appreciate them taking their time out to come on. And hopefully y'all will appreciate what they have to say. Ladies and gentlemen, um, we're closing out 2022. We're getting ready for 2023. I'm, I'm looking forward to a new year. And we still got some guests coming on this year. So I ask for y'all to stay tuned to the uh, podcast. Keep up the uh, good words of encouragement and the feedback that you are bringing us. And until next time.